Do you remember when you fell in love with video games? I know I played Pac-Man at an arcade when I was a kid. I don't really remember the details, though. But I do remember the exact time and place when I fell in love with video games. I was at the house of some family friends in 1987, and they had a Commodore 64, which was one of the first home computers back in the 1980s. If you're too young to remember this, just know that it involved using floppy disks, like not the little blue ones, but the big floppy disks. And you had to enter a code to bring up the game you wanted, load, an asterisk, comma eight, comma one. You might have seen people walking around Comic-Cons wearing shirts with that on there. So now you know what that means. It's the load code for Commodores, 64s and 128s. Regardless, the game I played, the game that changed my entire life, was Super Zaxxon. It was this weird 3D side-scroller thing. You were in a spaceship that was trying to penetrate an alien base and destroy a giant monster. You blew up oil tankers, which somehow gave your ship fuel via the explosion or something, and various other buildings, and you get points, and the further you went, the longer the levels got, and then the monster at the end would be a different color. Same monster, just a different color. I was obsessed. But in 1987, when I was just dipping my toes in the water, or fingers on the keyboard, things were already in play that would profoundly change gaming for me forever. They just weren't on my prepubescent radar at that point. Then on December of that year, a game that is near and dear to me was released. Final Fantasy. It was released for the Nintendo Entertainment System, an 8-bit third-generation home video game console in Japan. And it wouldn't come to North America for three years. It would be July of 1990. When I finally played it, I played it when I was 11 years old, and it was the first time that a game ever really impacted me with the writing, which was done by Hironobu Sakaguchi and Kenji Tarada, by the way. I remember getting it for my birthday, and it was like no other gaming experience I'd ever had. I can still remember having conversations with my buddy Matt. He was one of my fellow nerd friends, and we'd always say how great of a movie it would make. But movies and video games seldom seem to go together. Even in an era with incredible special effects that are able to bring gonzo ideas and visuals together, we still can't seem to get it right. This is Issue Zero, a show about the power of fandom and pop culture. I'm your host, Fred Kennedy, and today we'll try to answer the question, are movies based on video games always doomed to fail? And I won't be tackling this topic alone. I'll be joined by video game rock star voice actor Elias Tufexis, who has appeared in multiple Assassin's Creed games, Deus Ex Mankind Divided, and Human Revolution, Spider-Man, Far Cry Primal, and a bunch of TV shows too, like The Expanse. This guy knows games. And so does Shigeru Miyamoto, who sadly won't be joining us, but... He is one of Nintendo's legendary game designer, the guy responsible for The Legend of Zelda. And he's always said that there is a complete difference in the way a video game story is written versus a movie, which is why they seldom work on screen. Now, this is a direct quote, okay? 
I think part of the problem with translating games to movies is that the structure of what makes a good game is very different from the structure of what makes a good movie. Movies are a much more passive medium where the movie itself is telling a story and you as the viewer are relaxing and taking that in passively. Whereas video games are a much more active medium and you're playing along with the story. I think that video games as a whole have a very simple flow in terms of what's going on in the game. We make that flow entertaining by implementing many different elements to the video game to keep the player entertained. Movies have a much more complex story or flow to them, but the elements that affect that flow are limited in number. So I think that because these surrounding elements in these two different mediums vary so greatly, when you fail to take that into account, you run into problems. That's a quote from an interview he did with Edge Magazine back in 2007. It's a great examination by somebody who's knee-deep, we'll say hip-deep, in video game-based storytelling. And he is correct. But is it possible to take the structure of video game storytelling and make it work on the big screen? I asked Elias to see what he thought. I was just talking to a buddy of mine about this who's a, who's a video game creator. And we came to the conclusion that Especially now, when video games are, are huge and their storylines are, are, are 40 hours and you've got great actors and great writers and great directors, I almost think you, you don't need to make a movie of this. Like, they're announcing Uncharted uh, with Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg. And I'm like, you know what? I got four Uncharted games with Nolan North that are excellent with great acting and, and the storylines you get into. Why do I need a movie? If you ask me which one I think is good, I can't really, like, have there been any really good games that are based on movies? I can't really, I mean, excuse me, movies that are based on games? I can't really think of one. Everyone I think of is has disappointed, even, like, the most recent one, the Tomb Raider one, where they really put a lot of stock into it, and it still didn't come out very good. Uh, it's hard to take 40 hours of gameplay and turn it into a two-hour movie, because games at their core are, you know, the storylines are relatively simple at their core. They're most basic. The storylines are relatively simple. So this person has to conquer this problem and beat this big person, this big bad guy. But if you take that and you extrapolate it into 40 hours, then you get all these character arcs. And it's like the same thing that they're saying with the golden age of TV now. The reason TV is so great right now is because you have 8 to 16 episodes of characters, as opposed to when you go see a movie and you have two hours. The same thing is happening in games. You have 40 hours of Assassin's Creed, not to mention eight different versions, but you have 40 hours of Assassin's Creed, and you got to cram that into two-hour, not even two-hour, 90-minute movie, and it almost never works. Can you think of, I can't think of one that is a, is a success. Now, before we get too far along, let's set some ground rules for this episode. We're focusing on theatrical release stuff here, okay? There have been some direct DVD animated features, which have been pretty decent and entertaining to watch, like the Street Fighter one. I enjoyed it. And you could argue that the Pokemon movies count, too. They don't, because they're just on-screen cash grabs for the animated series as well. So, no, not happening. It's like saying He-Man was a series based on the action figure when the toys were tied into the series as a way of just advertising the toys. It's an entirely different concept, so let's move on. Now, to me, 
If we're going to talk video game movies, you really got to start with one that's a bit of an outlier. But in terms of video game movies, it really is the first. It's the 1982 Disney film, Tron. Now, I know this could be a contentious place to start. Because unlike other big video game movies, there was no Tron game when the movie came out. But I'll fight for it. Because the film's creator, Steven Leisenberger, created the movie after becoming fascinated with Pong. Yes, Pong, the original, original old-school video game. According to a 2012 article in the New York Times written by John Colhane, Leisenberger envisioned a world of what happened in the Pong arcade machine after the games were done being played. I guess that kind of makes it the original Wreck-It Ralph. Pong inspired Tron, so even though it's a bit of a stretch, I'm going to leave it on here and say it's still the best video game movie ever made. It's interesting to me, at least, that the thing that created this movie was Leisenberger doing with Pong exactly what I was doing years later with Super Zaxxon, creating a story based around the game, essentially putting the game itself into context by giving the main character purpose. It makes what you're doing so much more compelling. It all of a sudden becomes something of interest to you. So Tron is really just Pong fan fiction made by Disney. And the movie did well commercially, but it could have been massive. It was in a better release spot. This is a little interesting. See, Tron was meant to be a holiday release in 1982, but was moved forward into the summer so as to compete with Don Bluth's The Secret of Nim. Don Bluth was a Disney animator who left the company and took a few fellow animators with him to start his own company. And the rumor is that Disney's chief at the time, Card Walker, wanted to ensure that Don Bluth's first motion picture would not succeed. And in the process, stymied a movie that truly was decades ahead of its time. This is discussed at length in Harrison Ellenshaw and William Calais's book, How Tron Changed Visual Effects and Disney Forever. Regardless, as a result of that move, the movie was now also competing with E.T., Blade Runner, and Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. So instead of thwarting a former employee, Walker ensured that Tron would suffer at the box office. It made 50 million bucks off a 17 million dollar budget, but the studio wrote it off as a financial bust because they had really lofty expectations. Then the Motion Picture Academy refused to nominate it for special effects awards because according to an interview with Leisenberger from the San Francisco Gate in 2002, the Academy thought we cheated by using computers. Oh, they're ruining that day. It really is weird to read stuff like that given the way cinema has evolved in the years since its release. I watched it on Disney Plus the other day, and maybe I'm just old and cling to nostalgia, but I gotta say, Tron still holds up. So, that was the first crossover of cinema and video games. And if the goal is to get a good movie, then you have to talk story. And for that, you need something more than mainstream, arcade-based games that were happening in the early 80s. For that, you need to talk about all the PC RPGs or role-playing games that were happening then as well. Now, these were pretty underground. Like, you needed to be in the right circles to even know they existed. But they really paved the way for a lot of things that would become staples of RPG gaming. 
which really was the game genre that pushed the boundaries of storytelling in video game formats. You can read a lot more about it in the book Dungeons and Dreamers, The Rise of Computer Game Culture from Geek to Chic by Brad King and John Borland. And the book talks about how a legion of tabletop gamers, namely Dungeons and Dragons players, began taking their love of gaming digital. The two big RPGs for PC were Ultima and Wizardry. These were games that had much more complex stories than what you would find in arcades and early consoles, and in most other PC games as well. And before we move on, I gotta tell you about one of the coolest things. Okay, now, warning, this is a bit of a tangent, so just bear with me. The very first mass-produced PC RPG was actually made by a high school kid in Texas back in 1979. It was called Akalabeth, World of Doom, from 17-year-old Richard Garrett. Now, he made it on his high school computer and an Apple II that he had at home. And it was initially a school project. He worked on it for a few months using players in his D&D group as testers. Then he brought it to the electronics store he worked at, and the owner let him sell it in the store. So he was selling floppy disks with photocopied instructions inside a Ziploc bag with artwork for his mom, which you can still find online. I'll put a link in the show notes for you, okay? Anyways, that game found its way into the hands of California Pacific Computer Company, and they set up a distribution deal where Richard got five bucks for every copy sold, and he wound up making more than $150,000 from the game, which, when you do the math, is about $400,000 today, accounting for inflation. In fact, this game became the basis for the entire Ultima series, which really is the foundation of PC-based RPG gaming. And RPGs really were the first branch of games that went heavy on storytelling. So why didn't these games get their own TV shows and movies? Well, there was the alleged failure of Tron that kept movie and TV studios away, but there was another more obvious issue. They were, at the time, considered far too niche. And by February of 1986, in-depth role-playing PC games and the subtle world-building of the Ultima series would be set aside by the console that would go on to become one of the highest-selling gaming systems of all time, pushing more than 34 million units in North America alone. It's the system that I mentioned earlier, the one that introduced me to Final Fantasy in 1990 the Nintendo Entertainment System. And it's also the system that gave us Super Mario Brothers. It would be the gaming system that would give us what many would call the first true video game movie. Let's do the timeline here. February 1986 gives us the NES, but it had already been out in Japan since July of 1983 and was called the Famicom. And because of that, it had an ample gaming catalog already available upon release. But nobody had expected the success to be so monumental. In fact, the rush was so huge that game production facilities were running out of ROM chips for the cartridges and games that were intended to be released. And they wound up being pushed back. And one of those games was Zelda 2, The Legend of Link, and Super Mario Bros. 3. And that delay presented an opportunity. 
Nintendo was synonymous with gaming, at least for anyone in elementary school in the late 80s and early 90s. And I know because I was one of those kids. Video game tournaments were popping up everywhere in shopping malls, in department stores. It was pandemonium. Video games were becoming mainstream, which meant Tom Pollock of Universal Studios approached Nintendo's marketing team with the idea of doing a movie about video game tournaments. And the idea was kind of like the Who's Tommy, only with Nintendo. And you can read all about it in the amazingly titled book from David Sheff. Game over. How Nintendo zapped an American industry, captured your dollars, and enslaved your children. Awesome. Nintendo agreed, and they opted to turn the movie into a massive promotion for one of those delayed games, the previously mentioned Super Mario Bros. 3. Yes, I am talking about the Fred Savage masterpiece, 1989's The Wizard. I love the power glove. It's so bad. Yeah, well, uh, just keep your power gloves off her, pal, huh? This was something that had never been done before. An entire film production meant to tout the release of a video game. Well, it was an era for firsts, and the movie centered around a young boy named Jimmy dealing with PTSD over the death of his sister, and he was really good at video games. So you sort of forget about the emotional trauma stuff and just stick around for all the wacky 80s movie hijinks. Jimmy and his brother, played by Fred Savage, and a new friend hustle their way across North America with Jimmy's incredible gaming skills, eventually landing a top spot in Video Armageddon, the biggest, greatest video game tournament ever. And the big twist, the final game to be played is a new one never seen before. Super Mario 3, obviously. And Jimmy wins because he's the best and everyone is happy. Actually, you know what? It's a bit more involved. But the important part is that this entire movie was just a build-up for Super Mario 3. There's just one problem, though. Super Mario 3 had been released in Japan of October of 1988, so when The Wizard was released in theaters more than a year later, in December of 1989, the game had already gotten loads of coverage in countless video game-focused magazines, including Nintendo Power, the official Nintendo fan magazine. The movie made a profit, though, riding the wave of video game pandemonium, but it was shredded by critics who accused it of being nothing more than a commercial for a video game and merely pretending to be a film, which is an entirely fair statement because that's exactly what it was. But in the land of video games, things were springing up that had never happened before. Game shows built around video games, Video Power, Nick Arcade, and here in Canada, we had Video and Arcade Top 10 on YTV, and these were big shows. And they really foretold the future of streamed gaming. As kids, we were tuning in to watch other kids play video games for prizes. Then from 1990 to 1992, Nintendo launched the Super Nintendo, first in Japan, then here in North America. And this led to the rivalry with Sega, and ad campaigns for both companies went head-to-head, creating even more hype around gaming. This rivalry made Nintendo take a risk with their crown jewel property, 
and it led to the first true video game movie ever, the Super Mario Brothers. It was produced by this company called Light Motive. They're a smaller production house run by a guy named Roland Joffe. And he came up with the first draft of the movie, taking inspiration from Tim Burton's Batman movies and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So he took the script and he went to Japan, then met with Nintendo. And he came back with $2 million in startup money and temporary rights to the characters to make the movie happen. And this is all covered in an article from Wired by Jamie Russell, aptly titled, Why the Super Mario Movie Sucked. But at the time, Nintendo was confident that nothing could take away Mario's shine. And they hoped this movie would only further entrench the Mario-Nintendo brand in North America. Well, they were about to see that even though Mario could not be defeated, he could definitely lose a life. Or two. Light Motive brought in Academy Award winner Barry Morrow, who wrote the screenplay for Rain Man, and he rewrote the script, creating a movie so similar to Rain Man that the working title of the Mario Brothers movie was Drain Man. Yes, John Leguizamo discussed it at great length in an interview with Armchair Arcade back in 2017. Uh, But the screenplay was more of a drama, so they brought new writers in, and then more. And then more. In the end, they had a hodgepodge of a screenplay that became a nightmare to film, and what was meant to be five weeks of shooting ballooned to 17. The movie went over budget, eventually costing $50 million. And at the time, no one was happy with what wound up being the final product. Although in the same interview, Leguizamo admits it was the first real attempt at adapting a video game into a movie, so he's a bit softer on it now, saying he appreciates the people who love it because no one loved it when it was released. No one. The Super Mario Brothers movie would indeed be a disaster, making just over $20 million at the box office. And it was a definite sign of more things to come for video game movies. And I say that because at the time, another classic Nintendo title was already in production for its big cinematic debut, Double Dragon, a much lower-budgeted movie featuring the future star of Party of Five, Scott Wolf. He was one of the Lee brothers who were sworn to protect a magical medallion from the villainous Koga Shuko. I know, Oscar-winning stuff right there. That movie had a significantly lower budget of $7 million, and it still failed to turn a profit. Around the same time in gaming, Street Fighter II, which had long been the arcade king, got some fierce competition from a new game called Mortal Kombat, which was pushing the boundaries of censorship with its ultra-violent in-game deaths, hearts being ripped out of chests, decapitations, people being lit on fire. You know, all the good stuff. This had been seen before as some animated 16-bit characters, but Mortal Kombat used digitized images of real people. So it was deemed extra gruesome, and that helped market the game and make it even more successful. Travis Faust does a great breakdown for IGN entitled The History of Mortal Kombat. It was published back in 2011. And it details how the creators used every bit of parental outrage to make the game seem cooler in the eyes of teenagers and propel it into a dominant position in most arcades in North America. Capcom countered, of course, by, you guessed it, making a Street Fighter movie. 
And they released it in December of 1994. And in all fairness, the Street Fighter movie is pretty bleak, but it is entertaining. And more importantly, it was wildly successful. It had a budget of $35 million and brought in just shy of $100 million. It's also the last movie to star Raul Julia. And if that name doesn't sound familiar, he was Gomez Adams in the wildly popular Adams Family movies. Now, in the Street Fighter movie, he was cast as the game's main villain, M. Bison, and he repeatedly went on record about how much fun he had making the movie. And it really shows in his performance he was over-the-top campy, like a villain from a 1950s serial. And thanks to his acting chops, he could really pull it off. But again, we come back to the same issue. As a movie, it's not very good. But what do you expect? The game isn't story-based, and it has very little in the way of plot. Now, not to be outdone, Mortal Kombat released its own movie in the summer of 1995. And I need to acknowledge that it is one of the best video game movies ever made, partly because Mortal Kombat has a much more interesting backstory that makes the fighting a touch more compelling. The plot being that if the human fighters don't win the Mortal Kombat tournament, Earth will be taken over by the Shadow Realm. Or something else. So obviously, fighting ensues, because that's how these things work. Mortal Kombat was also far more successful in the box office. It had a smaller budget than Street Fighter, and its only real star was Christopher Lambert, best known for his role as Connor McCloud in the 1986 cult adventure fantasy film Highlander and the subsequent movies in the franchise. However, Mortal Kombat still managed to pull in $122 million. It also had one of the highest-selling movie soundtracks of all time, and it was the 10th biggest album of 1995, which means a lot because that was an era when people were still willing to pay money for music. But again, this wasn't a movie that was going to win any awards, and I don't think that was really the intent of the creators anyways. They were just using the movies as a marketing tool for the games. But this was about to change. New generations of gaming systems were being released, and a massive wave of games were landing on both PC and consoles at the same time. It was an interesting era, because now most of these games that were action-oriented were getting intricate stories in the games themselves. And one of those games was Wing Commander. It was a game that had multiple installments. And it involved a complex narrative that allowed the players to make decisions that affected the plot. And our guest, Elias Tufexis, loves that game. In fact, he said it was the first game that really drew him in based on the story alone. And it, too, was getting a movie which was released in the spring of 1999. Well, the movie's terrible, but the game, the game was with Mark Hamill and John Rice davies And it was kind of the first time I had ever seen real actors in a, in a video game with a, a whole story arc and a, a, that had, you know, a, a and B plots and you can choose exactly where the characters are going to go and what they're going to say. And this was in 2000, maybe 1999. And nobody had done anything like that before. And I remember, I remember thinking like, this is something I'd love to do. I'd love to be in this wing commander game. And uh, I was hooked and it was, there was four of them. And it was the only thing I spent money on was getting those Wing Commander games uh, over the over the few years that I uh, that they came out. And that was the first time I remember this was this is a whole story. This is like playing a movie. 
because before that, you know, yes, I was really into these games, but you know, they didn't really have, for the most part, they had very minimal. If you think of the Nintendo games like Mega Man or Mario Brothers, they had very minimal. This is the bad guy. This is the good guy. Go kill the bad guy. Uh, but when Wing Commander and then this other game called Deus Ex came out in 2000, and that again, that was also conspiracy theories and storylines and character uh, character driven stuff. And this is 20 years ago. So, I, I mean, I guess we should have predicted where games are going to go, but uh, but it was at the time it was pretty amazing, pretty revolutionary. Yes, the movie is a steaming pile of garbage, as Freddie Prince Jr. once said in an interview with Movie Line. And I quote, I can't stand Wing Commander. I can't watch one scene from that movie. I read the first script and loved it. So did my buddy Matthew Lillard. We both got parts. We went on location and they said, hey, here's a new script. And it was a piece of shit. <laughs> Yes, it's terrible, and it was a bomb commercially as well, losing more than $20 million. But again, this is the beginning of a shift. A shift that really came to head two years later when in June of 2001, Tomb Raider was released. Tomb Raider was a monster success financially, and it'd be a decade before Hollywood managed to match its success. A summer blockbuster in the truest sense of the word. It featured rising star Angelina Jolie, who was really coming into her own as a Hollywood megastar. It had a massive budget of over $100 million. It also featured one of the greatest character actors to ever appear on film, Noah Taylor. Look him up. He's been in everything from Shine to Game of Thrones. That guy's amazing. And it also made a lot of money, taking in more than $270 million at the box office. But again, the plot was paper thin and critics hated it. And IGN, the website that targets a gaming audience, even gave it a score of zero. And the criticism just dogpiled after that. One person who actually gave it a pleasant review was Roger Ebert. He gave it three stars out of four, saying that, and I quote, it turns silliness into an art form. And that, I think, is at the center of the video game problem. If they try too hard to make something serious, they end up parodying themselves in the process. And that would become the staple of game-based movies for the next few decades. Resident Evil, House of the Dead, Blood Rain, all of them had these stories that were, just look at how serious we are with our serious monster and our CGI effects. This is serious. Now, I don't want to list them. I could, but you, you get the point. And once Tomb Raider was released, you really did hit the zeniths of budgets and serious efforts to make big-time movies. But the problem at the center of this is always the story. It was easy to get a big star in a video game movie because the budgets were so huge. You just paid them enough money and they'd come. The problem was that these games that were being developed all had massive backstories attached to them. And the creators would cripple the movie trying to ham-fist it all in. Or they'd ignore whatever canon existed entirely and do their own thing. Which was consistently something that the fans hated. And it's a tough line to walk. And I've thought about this a lot over the years. And one of the things I've always noticed about a good game is how long and compelling the story needs to be to satisfy you. Miyamoto hit that on the head in terms of simplicity being key. And think about the way a good game flows these days. You go on a mission. It's simple. It's direct. We'll use Red Dead Redemption 2 as an example because I will die on the hill that it is the most beautifully crafted story out of any video game that I've ever played. 
Regardless, your mission. Go into town and see if you can get any tips for a robbery the gang can pull and take Bill with you. You go into town. It's simple. You know what you need to do, and along the way, you talk with Bill. And he tells you a story that opens up another mission you can do later on. You learn a bit more about the character's backstory and their relationships. Then you arrive in town. You get a tip on a horse coach to rob. Mission ends. Then you decide to go on Bill's mission or to rob the coach. After you choose a mission, the story tree spreads even more. And more. And more. It's a sprawling story told in simple chapters. One building on the last. It's episodic. And that raises the question. Will a game work better as a TV show? Yeah, I mean, if you're... It's, it's a really good way to look at it is you have a long-form storytelling. You could pause it on your own time, uh, just like TV and, and streaming now. Not, not, you know, not cable TV anymore, but who watches that anymore? You can uh, pause it on your own time, go back to it when you want, and so it makes it feel like you're in this long story as opposed to a movie, which is 90 minutes of everything crammed in. Elias Tufexis again. And to be honest, I think that might be the answer because episodic story writing allows for more character development and world building. Two things that are synonymous with great video games. And we're already finding out because one of the most popular video games in recent history, The Witcher, has been adapted into a Netflix original TV show. But... Elias explains this is kind of a special case. Because Witcher was a book series that was turned into a game. And then they turned the book series into a movie. In fact, into a TV show. In fact, if you look at uh, the promos for it, very rarely do you see based on the award-winning game. You always see based on the award-winning book. And the reason being is that they know people are going to go, oh, another video game show, a video game movie. It's going to be terrible. But another book movie is going to be amazing. So I feel like Witcher is not the best comparison because because it has that series. But having said that, I think if you could pick like the game that I'm in, um, uh, Deus Ex, one of the one of the one of the games that I did, which is you know a hundred hour story. You could literally sit and read and talk to people and play the storyline for a hundred hours. You can't turn that into a movie. You can't. It would be either it would be too complicated. Or they would just strip out everything and make it a bare-bones hero story. So if you took something like that, or like Witcher, for example, and you turned it into an eight-episode, 16-episode TV series with a relatively good budget, I think that's a, I think that could work. And I think Witcher is going to, even though it does have that caveat of being a book series first, I think that if Witcher is as successful as we all think it's going to be, it might open the doors for a lot more you know, these long-form storytelling versions of video games. Because, like I said, you, can't, you just can't take them. They're too complicated now. They're too long. They're too vast. You take it and either strip it to the bare bones or make it too complicated. Remember that Max Payne movie that came out with Mark Wahlberg? Yeah. yeah it was awful. Not that the Max Payne series was all that fantastic, but it was complicated. It did get you know, relatively deep and convoluted, and you can't do that in a 90-minute movie, especially a 90-minute action movie. So it, the movie turned out to be, you know, completely forgettable. So I think you might be onto something. I feel like if they're, yeah, if they, uh, if they turn Witcher into something good and nobody points out that it was a book series first, uh, I think they could, they could really, you know, open that door to make 
you know, like imagine an Assassin's Creed series over 20 episodes. That would be pretty great. That's true. The Witcher is, in fact, originally a novel written by Andre Sapkowski. The first book was released back in 1992 and was called The Sword of Destiny. And the series has been very successful as well. It's now got eight books with the last season of Storms having been released in 2013. And they were first adapted into a game in 2007 by CD Projekt Red. And it was built around the same engine BioWare had used for its recent RPG, Jade Empire. And the season continued up to Witcher 3, The Wild Hunt, released in 2015, which has gone on to become one of the highest rated RPGs in the modern gaming era. A huge terrain to explore, varied weather, intricate backgrounds. I mean, it felt like the world from the novels really was coming to life. And in 2018, Netflix decided they would bring it to reality. Initially, there was just talk of it being made into a single movie. I mean, eight books, three games to draw from, and they want to do a single movie. Have they not been listening to this podcast? That will never work, Netflix. Fortunately, Kelly Luganbeal, vice president of International Originals at Netflix, convinced the movie's would-be producers to go all in and create a series. And she argued that with all the backstory, there was just way too much for a single movie. And this was actually discussed in an article for Publishers Weekly from Jason Boog in 2019 called The Netflix Literary Connection. They cast Henry Cavill as the main protagonist, a monster hunting warrior named Geralt. He's not human, though. No, no. He's a witcher, which are specially trained fighters who've been mutated with an ancient ritual and as such have magical powers. It's a really cool concept, and I really enjoyed the show. I will say they pulled it off and set a huge precedent in doing so. But I can be honest enough to admit that it's not the best. I mean, there's some real dialogue issues, as in bad dialogue, and there's a lot of cornball moments. It's a Dutch creamery in terms of cheese. But the choreography is incredible, and Henry Cavill is just so gosh darn charismatic. So I really enjoyed it, despite all of its flaws. And I think it's a wide berth better than any of the video game movies that have come before. Any of them. Period. And that's interesting to me, because I sunk dozens of hours into Witcher 3, The Wild Hunt, trying to get into the game, and I, I just... I just couldn't. I tried. I really did. I just couldn't get it. But... It is an absolutely incredible game. The graphics... The world building, all of it, the environmental effects, the sound work are as good as any you'll find. But despite all of this, there was just no connection for me. So the game is like the polar opposite of the show. Now, remember we were talking about the Witcher series and the TV show and Elias was saying that it's based on a book. So it's kind of its own special case. That's that's true. But what about a purebred game being brought into the TV market? And we've got one. Halo. Yes, the Halo. The game that put Xbox on the map. And unlike The Witcher, there are no books. This is a straight-up game. What do you say to that, Elias? Yeah, that's going to be really interesting because Halo does have a pretty convoluted, I mean, not story, but history. So how do you, not only history of the actual project, I mean, the story history. Um, 
you know, the, the history of the world that you play in. So I'm curious. Yeah, I think they're probably watching how people are reacting to Witcher pretty seriously. I think they're already into full development, though, so they, they can't back out now. But, uh, yeah, I would imagine that that's going to be a real litmus test. If they pull that off, I think you're going to see a lot more places like Netflix and Amazon start saying, well, look, let's look into other popular video game IPs and see how many series we can make out of them. It was actually the reason I bought an Xbox. I was going through a breakup in 2003, and I crashed at my buddy's place and played loads of Halo. Hours! I loved that game. I've been saying that I think the story is what matters. So do I have any hope for the series? Yes, I do. Because those original Halo games, starting with Halo Combat Evolved, released by Bungie in 2001, had this amazing story of a future where humanity is at war and we're losing. And now it's being developed as a show that's got some big names behind it, too. Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment. It will be broadcast on Showtime sometime in 2021, apparently. There's no release date, but according to the best source I can find, which is a post from November 2019 on PCGamer.com, it's due in the first quarter. Production's being done in Budapest. It was originally slated for a 10-episode season, and that's been downgraded to 9, which means, you know, more meat for 9 episodes. And the showrunner is Kyle Killen. He's done shows like Awake for NBC and Lone Star on Fox, both of which lasted a single season and I've never heard of before. You know, as I say this, I sort of feel my expectations dropping. I want it to be good because at its core, it's just a fantastic story with yards of potential. We'll say meters because I'm a big fan of the metric system. But those are the big debuts for live action video game TV. The Witcher, which I really enjoyed, although I can admit it has its flaws, and Halo, which is one I desperately want to work but have a hard time expecting them to pull it off. However, according to Elias, when it comes to video game TV, there's one animated series that I am failing to mention. There's a, there's another avenue that we haven't discussed yet, and that's um, how successful... I brought up Castlevania as a video game, but we haven't discussed how successful the animated series is. I don't know if you know, but so Netflix bought the IP for, for uh, Castlevania for the animated series. And uh, this company that I'm working with right now, it's a company called Powerhouse Animation, they turned it into a very rated-R, uh, adult, violent, animated series. And they weren't sure how it was going to be received, and it, it's they're going on, they're going to make, they're on their fourth season now, and it's really, really, really successful, like incredibly successful. So there's that other avenue of, you know, you take something and turn it into something with a very basic story like Castlevania, and they turned it into this whole four seasons of really good work. So there's also animated series that's a possibility for because everybody's buying that now. But up until just a few years ago, no, none of these uh, streaming services were into animation. They were just licensing animation. But uh, now they're they're straight up producing it. And then Netflix is doing a He-Man one, and that's kind of a game. But they just did a Shira one, and now Castlevania they've done. It's a whole other avenue now that that if video game companies want to sell their IP to somebody and they're like, well, I don't want to make a Hitman, a Hitman live action series that's going to cost me $100 million. You can make a Hitman animated series that'll cost you four. 
Okay, I suppose I will allow it. It fits the modern criteria, I guess. But I need to say this. I fully expect TV adaptations of video games in this era of peak TV to do a better job with the properties than the movies have done. The episodic nature of a game melds nicely with the episodic nature of TV storytelling. And they will owe it all to The Witcher's success. And Castlevania too, I guess. Now, as we do every episode, I'm going to leave you with an Issue Zero Recommends. This week, I'm going to recommend that you play Red Dead Redemption 2, if you haven't already. It's more than a year old now. You don't really have an excuse. I wasn't lying when I said it's the most well-written game I have ever played, period. Maybe it's because I'm a sucker for westerns, but this really is just beautiful storytelling. The game involves the Vanderland gang. They're a group out of time. West is being tamed and they've come into conflict with a millionaire land developer who hires a private detective agency to wipe them out. And you play as Arthur, a man who wants out of the game but knows that the people need him. There's families involved, now children. And if he doesn't stay, they'll die. He knows it. He winds up going through heartbreak after heartbreak and there's so many scenes that get you so emotional. Seriously. You watch this drama unfold and you get sucked right in with a twist that fits so well and it happens right in front of your eyes and it just guts you. My Stetson off to the folk who wrote that over at Rockstar. A special thank you to our guest Elias Tufexis for joining us today. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to Issue Zero so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your favorite streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. And be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all our guests. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at Fearless underscore Fred, on Facebook and Instagram, and you can email me at issuezero at curiouscast.ca. This show is hosted and written by me, Fred Kennedy, and Dila Velasquez, our incredible producer. And sound design and final production is done by the very tall Rob Johnson. See you next time for more Issue Zero. 